Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Well, God, creator of heaven and earth, our King of kings and Lord of lords, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, Holy Spirit, uh, meet with us now as we come to your word that it may not just be information transfer, but Jesus become real. And we can't do that without your power. And so please would you do that through my words and in our hearts today. Give us ears to listen. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Diane just shared that we are going through uh, Genesis 1 to 3 and we hit the topic of the fall today. So this is, uh, it's all looking good up until Genesis chapter 3. There's hints uh, that it might get difficult and our lived experience tells us that sin is in the world. It's pretty obvious, but here we see how it came about. It's almost like there's been ripple effects from this moment in history right through to today. So the, the ripple effect, uh, we're told, is when you throw a stone into a pond and it only hits one place in that body of water, but the ripples create little waves that spread out all the way across that body of water and affect everything in dramatic ways. Uh, a mathematician and meteorologist, uh, Edward Lorenz, uh, described this as the butterfly effect. So he said that as he was doing his calculations uh, for trying to predict the weather, which is very challenging, he found that if you um, miss out and you round off your data input at the third decimal place, uh, you'll get vastly different results if you include all the data. So what this means is, he said, is that if a butterfly, it's, it's often said, if your butterfly flaps its wings in China, it will be the difference between a rainy or a sunny day in continental United States. Now that just seems a bit odd for us, but the point is, is that very small, seemingly inconsequential events can have enormous impacts. And Genesis chapter 3 is one of those. It's called sin. This is, uh, so the fall is where humanity fell. We were once... Uh, able to sin, uh, as I think St. Augustine put it, but we had not sinned yet. And yet when we brought sin into the world, it became like an infection, and we've been constantly infected with sin since then. We don't like to, word, uh, to use the word sin today. We use lots of different uh, words for sin. We like the word brokenness. Um, we like the word evil is, is a good way to describe things. Sin, it feels a bit personal in today's culture. It feels a bit archaic, a bit religious but we still feel the effects of it every day, in every way, and all the time. The good news, however, is that there is, in fact, an even greater ripple effect that happened a bit later on in history. When Jesus came to the world, he created a ripple effect which goes back through time and forward through time to affect everything in our reality in every way. So much so that when you read the Bible, knowing what Jesus has done, you realise it all points to him. Jesus explained his own ripple effect after he had risen from the dead, which we celebrate next Sunday, uh, after he'd risen from the dead, when he was walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and he was talking to a couple of disciples, and he pointed to them, these two disciples, 
everything in the scriptures that was about him. So the good news for us this morning, though there is a fall which has had enormous, devastating and hugely consequential effects upon the world, right to us today, there is an even greater work of God rippling through history which is actually one day will destroy all evil, will destroy all sin, it will end it and God in his son Jesus Christ will make all things new. He will right every wrong. Now, if we're going to have a look at the fall, uh, we need to take a bit of a deep dive into sin, what it is. Our text actually gives us a fair bit of an explanation. So first I want to look with you at the infection of sin, the infection of sin. Now, the idea of an infection or germ theory is actually fairly recent, last two centuries or so, although scholars say that in the Bible is actually the earliest known recording of any ideas of quarantine or infection that we have in human history. So, shouldn't be surprised to many of us, but God knew about infections before people did and gave it um, in the Mosaic law for how to deal with certain uh, kinds of skin diseases and the like. But in general, we have understood as humanity about germs, that is, things we can't see uh, that affect human bodies dramatically in the last two or so centuries. Now, if you were to go to the doctor uh, and you had a temperature and you had a sore throat, uh, and perhaps you know, there was a few other things going on, and the doctor just gave you some Panadol, but didn't actually look any deeper into what else was going on, you might get better in a couple of weeks. However, if the infection was highly dangerous, if the infection could possibly kill you, well then treating the symptoms will not be enough, will it? You can't just take a Panadol if there's something that is eating your body from the inside out, destroying you, the Panadol won't fix it. It will only treat the symptoms. It might make the effects of the pain go away temporarily, but even our pain relief has side effects if we use it long term. In order to deal with deadly infection, we must get to the root of the matter. It's true in medicine, and it's true in regard to sin. So let's have a look at what the root system of sin is. We see in our text, uh, and we're going to just go through the key uh, players in the text for a moment. We see in our text, firstly, the serpent turns up in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. We haven't heard about snakes so far in the text, but as a sense of foreboding, Human beings don't generally like snakes and we hear that this serpent is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Something is going to happen here. This tempter and deceiver has a goal. His goal is to stop humanity trusting God. Have a look with me in verse 1. What does he say? Did God actually say... He says that to the woman, to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? His first tactic, Satan's first tactic, is to get people to distrust or to doubt God's word or its clear interpretation. Let me say that again. Satan's first tactic is to get you to doubt God's word or its clear interpretation. If what, God, if what God says isn't true, then you can do whatever you like. 
That's the temptation, is it not? And actually, this has followed humanity since this moment. This idea that, is that actually what that means? Or is God's word really true? Now, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, we've seen consistently that God's word is by design. That is, he is our maker, he is our author, he is the architect of the universe and everyone in it. God architected you. So if we live in accordance with his word, we're told in Psalm 1, there will be a blessing. Your life will be blessed, fruitful, abundant. If we do not, we fall into a curse. That is the primary basis of sin. It is disobeying God at his word. So that's Satan's primary goal is to get a stop to, to stop trusting God and to doubting his word or its clear interpretation. Because Satan is sneaky. And so what we have today is something called revisionist both history and theology. It goes back and reinterprets the Bible in light of our modern ideas. Rather than starting with the Bible as God's authority to us, we start with ourselves and sort of impose our ideas on the Bible. That's dangerous territory because, again, we are falling under Satan's temptation to doubt God's word and its clear interpretation. The second thing we see in our text, Satan does. We see it in verse 5, or verse 4, sorry. It says, You will not surely die. For God knows, this is Satan speaking again, that when you eat of it, this is the fruit from the tree of, uh, of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God had told Adam and Eve, there is one tree that you are not supposed to eat from in the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, God says, on that day you will surely die, in chapter 2, verse 17. And so uh, Adam and Eve have been given God's word. They're to be fruitful and multiply. They're to subdue the earth, to fill it. They're to enjoy everything that God has given them in perfect harmony in this amazing paradise. And yet there's one thing they are not to do, and really symbolizes everything in it, doesn't it? You are to obey God's word fully and don't eat this tree because if you do that one thing, you are disobeying God and you are infecting yourself with sin. But Satan says... That's not really what's going to happen. He says, God is hiding something from you. If you take matters into your own hands, you'll get what you really want. You will get to be like God yourself. Even though Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, which they knew full well, Satan says, there's more on offer for you if you take matters into your own hands. And so... The temptation is to doubt God's word or the clear interpretation of it and to doubt God's goodness. Those two things, and Satan's not particularly original today, those two things have been at work against humanity since this moment, constantly, even in our hearts. And so when those two things come up, where do they come from? The serpent whom we know to be Satan. So that is a serpent's uh, part to play in sin, in the root system of sin. But Eve, Eve herself, because 
Notice the serpent spoke to Eve. She is responsible for her sin. This is what we call the sin of commission. She did something that was a sin. She committed sin, the sin of commission. She acted with her own personal agency, listening to Satan and sinned herself. But notice how she did it. We see in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she observed it, she was attracted to this tree, she felt like she needed it, it brought delight to her eyes. She thought, hey, this will be tasty. Right? And, and this seems kind of innocuous, doesn't it? Like it doesn't seem that important. And yet deep down it means something profound. It means that she was choosing what she wanted personally in her own human will against what God had said. It is an act of absolute personal defiance against your maker and creator with deadly consequence. And they knew. They knew that in the day that you sin, you will surely die. Isn't that amazing? It just tells us something about what we're like, doesn't it? We can know the consequences for sin are dramatic. Imagine a man or a woman considering adultery. right? They consider what it would be like to have another person and they know that the consequences will be devastating, destructive, so bad for them and their family and their children, everyone around them. It will break relationships. It will have lifelong consequences. And yet, it seems so attractive in the moment that we override what we know to be true. We know that actually it's worse to do that. And yet we override what we believe true. Isn't that we can deceive ourselves? We don't even need Satan at this point to deceive ourselves. We can just go, what I want is more important than what God says. So she acted with her flesh. And a good principle here, we only sin because we are attracted to things that we want. You don't do things, you're not attracted to things that you don't want. You're attracted to things that you want. And that's, kind of, that's normal, right? We, everybody wants different things, but when it's contrary to God's word or the manner in which you want it, for example, uh, wanting a spouse other than your own or wanting a husband or a wife other than your own husband or wife, that is contrary to God's design. And yet that attraction inside of us is just there sometimes. So this is where we can paint the difference. We won't go into this in detail, the difference between temptation and and sin itself. The attraction or the temptation is not sin. Right? Even Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, was tempted and yet without sin. So we know that he is fully human. Even in her temptation, Eve had not sinned. Even in her attraction to the fruit, she had not sinned. She had not committed sin, but she was close. So she acted with her flesh, but secondly, and this is where it got very dangerous. She listened to Satan's temptation. We see at the end of verse 6, she says, And the tree was desired to make one wise. She believed the lie. She believed, even though she had heard and knew what God had said, she believed the lie. Now, we all do this, right? Eve is not alone in doing this. We believe lies that God is not good, God is holding something out from us, and so we take matters into our own hands rather than trusting his word. 
right? We get angry and yell at people because we think they'll never hear us if I don't yell in my anger at that person and sin against them and call them all sorts of nasty things because we don't believe that God will take care of our needs if we don't do that. Just anger, that's just one argument, for example. You know, we've talked about adultery, anger is so common. What about our careers? You know, we think, gee, I could, I could get more money if I work on Sundays, for example. But I know that that will be increasingly difficult for my Christian faith and for the faith of my family and my children or if I take my kids to sport on Sundays. These are challenging things we have to face all the time. But if we consistently do those things, if we consistently work on Sundays, consistently put our kids in sport on Sundays, consistently go to children's birthday parties on Sundays, and you know they're all fine things we could potentially fit in, but when they inevitably crowd out church consistently, what do we find? Our faith diminishes. It becomes personalised, not corporate. We stop being part of the body of Christ. And we have an individual faith. And really, it's extremely hard to pass on your faith to your children when you say work, sport and social gatherings are more important than church. What's the message that we're passing on to our children? This is, this is like challenging stuff because half a century ago, you didn't have anything on Sunday because we were in a more Christianized culture. So it was easier. But I tell you today, it is far more challenging to the parent of children to keep the faith in the family. And so it's not just culture's fault. We have to look at ourselves as parents and go, what message are we giving to our children? But what, but what do we say? What is Satan perhaps working on us? It's you can take matters into your own hands. Don't trust God at his word where it says in Genesis, sorry, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 to not neglect to meet together. We think, well, we can skirt around that. But the truth in God's word is that every time we go against his word, there are consequences. So E, so we've looked at the serpent. The serpent wants to get us to stop trusting God, doubt his word, doubt his goodness. Eve committed sin. She acted in the sin of commission. She acted with her flesh, what she wanted personally, but Satan influenced her. He tempted her to go directly against God's word and goodness. That was demonic. That was of the enemy. It was directly against God. And so she sinned. Where was Adam? In all of this, in uh, Genesis 3, 1 to 7, Adam really doesn't even pop up very much until we get sort of towards the end of verse 6. And it says, And she, Eve, also gave some to her husband after she ate the fruit, who was with her, and he ate. Now, the ominous word we should take from this is, He was with her, and he ate. He was there. He said nothing, did nothing. Now, this is a danger for all human beings. It's a danger for men. In particular, we see in our text, Adam was a coward. He did not take responsibility as he ought to have, as God had told him to, as we've seen, as we've been going through the book of Genesis. Part of man's responsibility, part of man's design from God, his good design, is for us to take responsibility, to step up. When the occasion comes, we stand together, you know, two are better than one. Eve alone, you know, couldn't withstand 
the tempter, the deceiver, but maybe together they could have. She, he could have reminded her, hey, God's word says this, and she could have said no. But it didn't happen. His sin was the sin of omission. Her sin was the sin of commission. She did it. His sin was the sin of omission. He didn't act when he ought to have. His sin was neglect. His sin was a failure to step up. And so he ate of the fruit because what else would he do? If he couldn't help his wife in her moment of need, then when she handed him the fruit, he just ate it. Sin had already infected him. He had already sinned by not stepping up, by not saying anything. So what is the root system of sin? Well, it's got Satan involved. It's got commission of sin, the act of it, the flesh, and also listening to the doubting of God's word, the doubting of God's goodness that comes from Satan. It's a sin of omission, not stepping up when we ought to. All these things together have infected humanity in every way, so, that so, so much so that it is in every part of our lives. And we'll learn... Uh, next week, that it has infected all of creation. God has placed his curse upon the world, upon humanity, so that things are far more difficult than they ought to be because we have broken relationship with him. We have disrupted his good harmony that he has given us. So God has given us just consequences for it. What's the result of all this? Well, in our text, again, quite ominous, verse 7, it says, The eyes of both, that's Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, this is in direct contrast to chapter 2 and verse 25, where it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here, after sin, they are ashamed. They make loincloths to cover themselves. Notice that, as soon as you sin, you become vulnerable. You seek to cover up yourself. But there's more. There's more. It, it leads to further sin. What this tells us, this text tells us, is that sin begets sin. That one little thing always leads to another. That one thing you know you ought not do gives you a taste and you cannot help but desire more. Notice in the text, their sin leads to shame, right? It says, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But we see what that looks like in verse 8. It says, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. God used to walk personally through the garden in the cool of the day. They had this intimate, close relationship with God, it, it implies to us, and yet now they hide in fear, in shame. There's been a vertical relationship break between Adam and Eve and God, between humanity and God. Look at verse 10. Uh, when God calls out, where are you? In verse 10, and Adam, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So not only does sin lead to shame, lead to hiding from God, it leads to lies and fear. 
he wasn't hiding because he was naked. He was hiding because he'd sinned. Their eyes were opened. They knew it. Notice the consequences keep falling like a cascade, one after the other. We see again in verse 12, God questions, sorry, verse 11, God questions Adam. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, while technically that's true, isn't it? Like technically he's right. He also sinned big time God had told him to be the one to be fruitful and multiply God had spoken to Adam specifically do not eat of this tree and he blames her for it so now we've we've seen a vertical break people are ashamed they're hiding from God they're lying toward him they're fearful of him in the wrong sort of way So there's been a vertical break in relationship with humanity and God, but there's been a horizontal break too. Adam's blaming Eve. He should have stepped up. And yet he blames her. There's been a horizontal break as well. Sin begets sin every time. Sin begets sin. Sin is everywhere. Sin is infectious. You touch it and you catch it, and you keep it, and you pass it on to others. It is deep, and it is everywhere. How might we look at sin today in our culture? Well, we look at sin in three different ways, and I think this is just important because we don't often use the word sin, but we feel sin. We experience sin all the time. So let me just explain three ways. Firstly, we think of sin subjectively. Now, I was um, just driving the other day and I saw someone in a work van throw their litter out the window. They just threw it out the window as they were sort of in, in traffic and I was outraged. Outraged. I was thinking, who does that? Who does that in the, you know, the 21st century in 2023? Who literally throws their litter out the window? He must have finished his pie or whatever it was. It's a brown paper bag, screwed it up and just threw it out the window, kept driving. I took note of the number plate, I thought, and there's like a phone number on the back. Always dangerous, isn't it? Um, don't litter, right? If you've got a phone number on your car, I think I should report this person. Absolutely outraged. And then as I'm sort of just part, like lined up with the traffic, I'm looking around, so there's people, everyone does it texting on their phones. I thought, well, that's a sin, but I don't care about that one. The litter, that is what upsets me. And then I thought for a minute, that is so subjective. We're so culturally infused. We hate the idea of someone littering, and yet someone texting on their phone and literally being able, probably by that distraction, running someone over and killing them, we don't care about it all because everybody does it. Except no one really litters these days. Isn't that interesting? Sin is so... Subjective. Subjective, right? I mean, they're they're both wrong, but our take of it is so subjective. We also think about sin personally. That is when our lives go bad or when we go against our own morals. So when bad things happen in our lives, we kind of, you know, try and draw back and work out, well, what caused all of this? And was was it that bad decision? Was it this thing that I did? You know, was it that that happened? 
we tend to look at that. And we also tend to look at it because we all actually go against what we think we ought to do as well. So we think about sin personally, but we think of it more in terms of consequences in our lives or when we do the things we know we ought not to do or we don't do the things we know we should do, a mission commission. It's still there, isn't it? We're still hearing echoes of Genesis chapter 3. We also have a corporate and judicious sense of sin. So that is we have laws, legal frameworks, definitions, where we work things out in a court and we have a judge or a jury which is supposed to make right and just judgments upon particular cases. Right? So all of these are ways that we deal with sin. However, almost all of these are horizontal. That is, they're dealing with humans and our relationships to one another and even our relationship to creation, right? You know, we have all sorts of laws for how we uh, treat creation these days. It wasn't always like that, by the way, but it is now. None of these are vertical related to how we deal with our relationship to God. When Jesus, uh, in uh, Mark chapter 4, was uh, met by a, a paralytic. In fact, there were four men that brought this paralytic to Jesus. And they were intent on bringing him to Jesus that he may be healed. So it's Mark chapter 2. They were intent on bringing this man to Jesus that he may be healed of his paralysis. A paralytic just means he couldn't walk, essentially. So he was brought on his bed... Uh, to Jesus and there were so many crowds crowding around the house trying to get their problems solved by Jesus that they got up on the roof it says they literally dug through the roof and lowered this man through they were very keen that this man would be healed by Jesus yet the first thing that Jesus does is not heal the man he doesn't heal him in fact it says uh, in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5 it says when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, this guy's paralyzed. This guy can't walk. His friends have gone to an extreme amount of effort to get him healed by the, you know, this traveling healer and prophet, and yet Jesus forgives sins? Essentially, Jesus is saying that the forgiveness of sins is more important than your symptom of sin. The forgiveness of sins, sorting out the vertical, is more important. Why? Because that's the root cause. That's where it started. Jesus is also saying in this text that he has the authority to forgive sins. That is, he has the authority to make things right. Only Jesus has the authority to deal with sin. So seeing the infection of sin, I want to just talk briefly about how we treat sin uh, in our modern era, and then I want to spend a bit more time on how God treats sin. So how do we treat sin today? Well, I, I want to say there's four um, typical methods that we use to treat sin in our modern, uh, prim primarily secular culture, but some religion in there as well. Four methods. First, we think of justice. That is, people need to be punished for their sin. Right, we think of justice. So imagine um, you know, I see the person litter out the car. I you know, call up whoever you call for people littering, and 
they get a penalty, justice has been done. That's how I feel. Or if I sin against myself, or I sin against others myself, I feel like that I might need uh, justice against myself. That typically doesn't happen, but sometimes people are very aware of their own sinfulness, except that can lead um, to self-loathing, if we really take that on a lot, and self-hatred, because we feel like we feel disgusting, dirty, because of our sin. We feel the infection of it. So we think of justice, that's how we deal with sin. Uh, another essence of justice is actually what's called cancel culture. That is, if someone does something bad once, they're cancelled for life. So that is, if you do something and everyone finds out about it, you will never be forgiven. You can never make atonement for your sins. You can never be forgiven. You are cancelled. That's the idea. Very popular um, in sort of media politics, those kinds of things. That's why you find a scandal, people don't come back from them now. They often used to be able to, but it seems, for the most part at least, once you're done, that's it. So justice, that's the first way we try and deal with sin. Second way we try and deal with sin is willpower. We think, we recognise our problems, and we think, I can fix this myself. Read a self-help book, get therapy, protest. We take matters into our own hands to deal with our problems. Third way we try and deal with sin, if the first two don't work, we go to religion. We think if I'm good, that is, I'm a morally righteous person, if I obey God's law, God will deal with my sin and accept me. So, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic faith is not dying off, right? Contrary to popular belief, the Roman Catholic faith is not dying off, which for many people... They feel that that is how they can gain God's forgiveness by living a good life, by confessing their sins, by going to a confessional, but not actually dealing with the root issue of sin, the unbelief, the reason in their heart. They just go through a religious process to be forgiven, to be atoned for, and then go out and do the same things again. Religion is a way that we think, if I'm good enough, God will accept me. There is a fourth, though, this is a fairly new way to treat sin, and that is acceptance. The idea of acceptance is I cannot change. I will continue to sin. And so now we say others must change or support me in my sin patterns and behaviour. Right? Uh, author Carl Truman says this is a result of Western uh, individualism. That is... If I can't change my behaviour, everyone around me in culture must change to accept how I behave and act. As long as I'm not harming other people, it's okay. Of course, the definition of harm must come into it, but that is a way that we try and deal with sin today. This requires probably more therapy to deal with, and it's also a cheap kind of forgiveness because there's no atonement, there's no, no one pays, you don't pay for what you've done, and there's no repentance. Now, our culture today, we apply various forms of these to ourselves, to others, and in society. The problem with all of them, let me say this, but with all of these secular, modern ways, even the religious one, is they, ne- they only deal with the symptoms. They only deal with the symptoms. If the, cons- if the wages of sin are death, then we have not even touched on this real, deep, deadly 
issue of sin. We're just dealing with the symptoms and they're all almost horizontal. In fact, even the religious one is horizontal. It's about what I have to do. It's got nothing to do with what God has done. It's what I have to do that God would accept me. What sort of penance I must do. You know, how I must live a good life to make up for my sins. It's all about me still. There's really no vertical aspect to it. That is how we treat sin today. And it misses the mark entirely. In Psalm 51, we get an insight, an insight to a different perspective. In Psalm 51, where uh, King David, who has sinned big time, he writes a song, a poem to be recited by God's people about his personal repentance for sin. He'd been caught out. He'd committed adultery and he'd covered it up and arranged the murder of the husband. And then he took the wife as his own. There were various consequences for that. And he tried to, he tried to deal with them. He followed in the pattern of Adam and Eve. He covered it up. He ignored God. He avoided him. He did everything he could because of his position of power and authority because he could get away with it for the most part to deal with things horizontally. But God knew. God sent his prophet Nathan to confront David. When David was confronted that God was angry with his sin and that God was aware of his sin, though he would deceive himself that all was okay, David repented. He says these striking words, though, in Psalm 51, which should always get to you. He says, against you, you only have I sinned, he says to God. Against you, you only I have sinned. Now, reading that, you sh we should be in shock, firstly, because it's quite obvious, no, he has not just sinned against God. He has sinned against Bathsheba, right, taking another man's wife, against her using his power and authority to seduce her. He's sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's wife leading, arranging his murder and covering it up. He sinned against his kingdom. Right? He sinned against everyone who was complicit in what he was doing in the arrangements, the cover-up. He has sinned grievously against many people and yet in Psalm 51 he says, against you, you only, I have sinned. Is, is David just ignoring the consequences of his sin? Is he just ignoring that he sinned against many people? No, he's going to the root and the heart of the matter. Because sin categorically is only sin because it's against God. We only have a category for sin because it is against God's law. Now this is really important because if you hold to our secular Western view that there is no God, then there is no sin. We have no way, morally and objectively, to tell someone else they are a sinner other than our social constructed laws and our relative and subjective ideas. You can't really say to someone else, you've done the wrong thing if there is no God. But if there is a God, then 
we are weighted down by our sins. There are consequences. I think the, the real issue with this is that almost every person, every Australian, really does believe in sin. We do believe there are moral absolutes. We do believe in right and wrong. And so actually, we do believe there is a God or some ultimate authority out there. We may not care about him. We might not have a relationship to him. Well, we believe that he is really there. But David tells the truth. He says, my sin is ultimately against God. He is the one to whom my debt is owed. David does not want God to blot him out from his presence. David does not want God to take his Holy Spirit from him. This tells us, in order to really overcome sin, to deal with the the real issues in our lives, we must see that sin is primarily against God. That sin is primarily against God and that is where it will be sorted out. Of course, there are consequences. Yes, we have to deal with our sins against other people, but categorically, we must realise, we must recognise that sin is ultimately against God. So we've looked at the infection of sin. We've looked at how we try and treat sin. And I think it's ineffectiveness. It's handling the symptoms. Finally, we'll spend a few moments on talking about how God treats sin. Jesus was uh, an annoyance to a lot of people. Contrary, perhaps, to popular opinion, um, A lot of people didn't like Jesus. A lot of people think Jesus is a good teacher, should be uh, well respected, but a lot of people didn't believe that. They didn't really respect him. And a lot of the religious authorities got upset with Jesus because he spent too much time with undesirables. Spent too much time with social outcasts, with what people liked to call sinners. Sinners were people who were obviously sinners. The prostitutes the tax collectors, sort of loan sharks, people who took advantage of um, uh, people financially, Uh, you know, other people who were sort of the the lower part of society. Their sin was obvious. And so the Pharisees took issue with Jesus, said, you're supposed to be a holy teacher, you're supposed to be a prophet, you're healing people, and yet you spend time with all these sinners. This is what Jesus said. Mark 2, 17, he says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying he's a doctor. And there's one thing he's come to treat, and it's sin. And if you don't realize that you're a sinner, there is no treatment for you. This is quite obvious, isn't it? You might have all the symptoms, but unless you go to the doctor to get healed, you're not going to get what you need to handle the infection. Jesus is saying the same thing. We've all got all the symptoms, but unless you recognise it, unless you recognise you are categorically a sinner, it cannot be treated. Let's have a look back in Genesis chapter 3. I want to ask you the question, Did Adam and Eve die for their sins on the day that they sinned? Did they? God says in chapter 2 and verse 17, In that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In that day. 
They didn't die on that day. Why is that? What happened? Why didn't God just see what they'd done and strike them down immediately? That's what justice called for. Justice, full justice, which we sometimes like when it comes to cancel culture. You write someone off for the rest of their life. They can never be forgiven. They can never pay for their sins. They write someone off forever. That's the way we're moving now. But we don't like it when it's applied to us. If you apply that sort of justice, which is full without mercy, to this text, at that very moment when Adam and Eve sinned, they should have been struck dead. Eternally. Without any reconciliation to God, and God should have started again. Or done whatever he wanted to. He could have just ended creation at that point. That was a just demands. And yet, that is not what happened. God forgave their sins. How could God forgive their sin? How could God forgive their sin? They'd said, I will stand against you. I will not believe. I will listen to the serpent rather than God. I will listen to my own desires rather than you. I will break trust with you, even though you've given me this whole of creation to look after. I'll break trust with it. I'll do whatever I want from now. How could God overlook their sin? And moreover, God said the consequence, listen to this, the consequence for their sin was death. Right from the get-go, even before they sinned. He said the so what is God saying here? If he forgives them, he has to take the debt of sin onto himself. Let me say that again. When you forgive sins, you take the debt from the perpetrator and accept the suffering instead of them. Let me explain it. Let's say you're walking down the street. I pop out from the side of a building and throw a rock at you. That's probably not going to happen. But if it did happen, I pop out from the side of a building, I throw a rock at you, it hits you in the head. Right? You have to get an ambulance is called by a um, nice bystander. You're taken to hospital. No brain damage, but you lost a couple of weeks of work. Your family's had to look after you. Lots of people have been giving you meals, supporting you. Uh, you've got a bit of PTSD, so you're afraid now of walking down that same street. And then you happen to see me a month later. Right? You see me a month later, and you say, you threw a rock at me. And I say, ah, oh, that was a month ago. Don't worry about it. Just forgive me and we'll move on. That doesn't settle things, does it? Does it? If you forgave me at that point, that would be cheap. That would be unjust, in fact. I should have to pay some consequences, not only for what was done, but for the future protection of others that I might be waiting behind a building to throw a rock at. Watch out. The sin does not go away. There is a record that you hold, a debt. If I release, so if you release the debt to me in forgiveness, you're saying everything that happened, my two weeks in hospital, so my week in hospital, my two weeks of recovery, everyone that supported me, the PTSD I continually go through, everything else that's going on in my life, I will wear that and not hold you accountable for it. I will bear all that suffering alone. You have to bear nothing for it. That's what forgiveness means. I will bear the suffering. And here, in Genesis, God is saying, I will forgive your sins because I will bear the consequence for it. 
here, in our text, we see that God himself is saying, if death is the penalty for sin, I will bear that penalty myself. That is the only way God can forgive sins. If he will bear the penalty for sin himself. Only if God, in the garden, in his mind, Jesus, before he became a man, was prepared to go to the cross, could he forgive the sins of Adam and Eve in that moment. The Bible tells us that God voluntarily suffered for the forgiveness of sin. He did it for Adam and Eve and he will do it for you and I. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. No one is righteous, no, not one. The Bible tells us that every person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in every way. We haven't lived up to God's standard. We can live up to our own standard perhaps, but actually if we're honest, we can't. If we can't live up to our own standard, how on earth are we supposed to live up to God's holy standard? God's plan, God's purpose is that we would be forgiven of our sins, that our relationship to him would be righted and reconciled. But first, we have to realise that the root of sin is in us. It's willful. Whilst we aren't responsible for the infection, we still are responsible for our choices. And it's ultimately not just the sins against one another that's going on here, because sin is categorically and primarily against God. And so that is where it must be dealt with. Now, the New Testament basically tells us that if you repent, if you experience forgiveness of sins, and you have faith in Jesus Christ, in his death, which paid the penalty for your sin, in his resurrection, which guarantees new life for everyone who believes in him, the promise is you will have that for all eternity. You will go to heaven. We are saying it before. There is a place in heaven for you if you believe those things from the heart. You can receive that today. But the Bible also tells us that if we believe these things, we will sin less. Not be sinless, but sin less. We'll live a better life. We'll live a life that is more honouring to God. Now that is not everyone's ongoing and continual experience. But it is sometimes. Let me just read out four examples of where this happens. This often happens for people at their moment of conversion, when they realise they've become a Christian, they experience a special joy that comes with it, and they have radical changes in their lives. There's many gradual changes that happen over a long period of time, but people often have radical changes. They give up drinking. You know, they stop swearing. They have better relationships. They forgive people because they themselves have been forgiven. They hold, they don't, heap up everything into bitterness. They let it go. They release it to God. And more and more and more, they become law-abiding. It feels like we want to change because we love God more. So we experience sinning less after we've been converted. We also experience it when we've been had a spiritual high, perhaps we've been on a camp or a conference, we've had an experience where we've been filled with a reminder of what Jesus has done for us and in the following days and weeks, we feel like we have a special power not to sin. 
or to sin a lot less. Things we used to do, do we don't do. We used to be consumed by lust, we're not consumed by it anymore. At least for a few weeks until the high peters off. Often we have a sinning less and more joyful time after we've had a crisis, perhaps a health crisis, perhaps the death of a loved one. We begin to dig deep into what God has done. We realise that what Jesus has done is true and real and it seems to get into our lives again and so again we don't feel like sinning as much. And fourthly, probably less common, but it is there. We're moved by a sermon. We're moved by personal Bible study or conversation by someone. And we feel like we've been reminded again of what Jesus has done for us. And so we sin less. Sin doesn't seem to have a control over our lives anymore. Let me say to you, what do all these four examples have in common? You know, the conversion joy, the camp or the conference high, the crisis transformation, the being moved by a sermon, personal Bible study or conversation? Because we've been reminded of the gospel again. It seems that Jesus' power to forgive sins is an ongoing power which will change your life forever. And so why don't we live like this all the time? Why don't we constantly meditate and think about and consider that Jesus has, just like we find out in the garden, promised that he would be the one to bear our sins? Because if we did, you know, 2 Peter 1 tells us that if we don't have the virtues of a Christian ongoingly and increasing, we've forgotten that we've been cleansed from former sins. Your personal awareness of your forgiveness of sin directly affects your life. So let me say this, if you want to grow, you need to be a person who is dedicated to ongoingly digging deeper and deeper into what Jesus has done for you in as many ways and places as you can, then you will start to experience a renewed joy, a renewed faith. Sin will not have power over you like it used to. You'll experience forgiveness afresh. You'll feel it. And you'll be able to forgive others like you hadn't before. You'll be free. It doesn't matter whether you're sick or healthy, rich or poor, well-known or not known, lonely. These things will become secondary because God will become primary because you realise everything that he's done for you, that he truly is good and that he always keeps his word. All right, let us pray and then we're going to have a band up for a final song. Now, Father, we want to thank you uh, for teaching us, teaching us about your work to forgive us, about the brutal reality of sin and yet the way that you treat sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the great physician. But we pray that you would fill us with this truth. Help us to be people who consider deeply all that you've done on the cross for us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.